Hi everyone, and welcome to the RegTech Report, your update on all things RegTech. My name is Carl Viertel, and with me is Stefan Celestio. Our mission is to bring you the latest news, speak with industry pioneers, and news about the latest tech. And we're back with a new episode of the RegTech Report. Now, if we're sounding a lot more energized, then that is because we switched it up in our recording booth. We're now standing instead of sitting, and uh, obviously that allows us to project our voices much more with me, of course. Uh, as always, Stefan Zulistio. Hello again, mm-hmm. and I'm very interested to see how that turns out here, audio-wise. <laughs> now, we've got some really cool topics for you guys today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the ISO 27001 standard um, and uh, how certifications make sense or not. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, PSD2, obviously the news, and uh, we've got a really cool top three prepared that I think you guys will love and will uh, certainly be able to relate to if you're uh, in any way, shape, or form in the same business as we are. So first of all, ISO 27000. Um, it's uh, pretty topical for us. We uh, just went through our uh, first supervisory audit, meaning uh, we've been certified ISO 27001 um, for the last, uh, well, almost a uh, year and a quarter. And uh, we actually just uh, published a uh, white paper where we sort of summarized some of the um, experiences, how we got to where we were um, with the ISO certification. Um, and we actually just about an hour um, prior to recording this podcast also did a webinar. So check out our website. You can uh, download all that good stuff, some templates, a nice white paper, and uh, sooner or later the recording of the uh, webinar as well. Um, but I did want to talk about some uh, key lessons um, that we took away. Uh, so obviously, Stefan, you were along for uh, the journey. What was sort of your big learning from uh, the last year of being ISO certified? Well, um, in some of the realities, it maybe turned out different than I was originally expecting. And I think the reason for that is ISO 27000 is one of these typical things, and I think that's quite common in, in our industry, that people talk about some things, but uh, not a lot of people actually read the thing like really in detail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But you have to do that when you uh, work with the auditors on that. No, agreed. And uh, I mean, I think uh, working with the auditors is a really good uh, headline because for me, one of the big learnings was um, think like an auditor. Now, obviously, uh, we have a little bit of uh, history in that because we have uh, done audit work before. Um, but, you know, when when you're uh, working with the auditors, you really need to help them out, right? Because they don't want to let you fail. They want you to get certified because they're out for the, uh, for the business of the recurring audits. And so uh, I think probably in the first uh, stage one audit that we did, um, we were probably a bit more combative. And uh, I remember at least I was and was trying to sort of always be right. But you know, that's also your personality check. <laughs> yeah, guilty. <laughs> guilty is charged. Um, but I, I, I do learn. And Carl, Carl, Carl is a very red social style, if you haven't uh, figured that out before. So in any case, in, in the second st- um, uh, stage two auditor certification, um, I really found that it was so much easier just to point them in the right direction and enable them to make their tick mark and see what they needed to see. And, uh, you know, I really sort of chose my battles. And uh, I think we were really in our groove for the stage one audit because we walked out of that with um, no findings, no deviations, uh, only two minor comments, which uh, if anyone has had any experience, it doesn't happen often. And so I was pretty proud of it. <laughs> um 
what was uh, is there another sort of uh, key learning uh, that that you put, uh, took away from the process? Yeah, I would say. I mean, in, like any any of these kind of ISO type audits, and they're all somehow related to a quality management process. It's all about the scope. I would say. Yeah? Because you can easily make that a super complex, huge project by uh, saying you do pretty much everything uh, your organization does, depending on how large it is. Uh, but if you define your scope very clearly, um, I mean, in an extreme case, you could make it like extremely small. But then on the other hand, whoever you give that certificate to, they might challenge, of course, ah, it doesn't really cover anything. <laughs> so it's a balance to, to find um, what do you want to have covered. Uh, yeah, agreed. And I guess another big learning for me is um, – Getting the certification does not mean that you have every control as mentioned in the Annex A or whatever um, 100% covered. It just means you're addressing it through a management mm -hmm. system, right? So, you know, yep. typically, uh, if, you know, if you have a weakness or don't have something fully implemented, you raise a risk, you manage a risk, you have a plan in place as how you're going to address it, and that's fine, right? And so I think a lot of people um, don't have that understanding and thereby uh, probably end up spending – effort in the wrong places to get certified. Yeah, and I think that's, again, the difference between people just orienting on that standard, what I used to do in the past, where people focus a lot on the controls uh, and the annex uh, and basically ISO 27002. Uh, but the certification for the ISMS is a lot about the formal process of how you handle it. What you would normally think, ah, it's kind of a no-brainer and pretty obvious, but it's like the satisfying the, re the formal requirements and all the documentation and the um, that it's auditable and uh, they can uh, the auditors can basically give you a, a mark on it is is a slight is just different no? I agree different focus than maybe real life in some some cases so obviously the uh, ISO 27001 it it certifies a management system for information security um, and so that begs the question for me um, who should have a certified um, information security management system? Of course, everyone. Using no. a line, naturally. <laughs> no, joking. <laughs> um, so, I mean, typically nobody does that so much out of their own uh, um, uh, intentions or own uh, initiative. It's typically driven externally and typically by customers, right? So if you're, if you're selling to big corporations, they might um, sometimes outright require it. I wouldn't say that's so often. But it, um, they, they have to do their own due diligence on you as a vendor. And if you can show them something like, like this, that makes that conversation just so much more easy, yeah. easy and, and puts it on a different level, basically. I will still say I think there's sort of a lower threshold of organization size where it just does not make sense. And I would say below 15 people, uh, I don't know if it really makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't even know how you. It's basically a management process with yourself. Then, uh. yeah, which is really easy to implement, yeah. quite frankly. But yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, maybe to to close off the segment, what would you say is probably the biggest pitfall, or what's the biggest mistake you can make in this space? Uh, I'm just missing some of the formalities. Maybe arguing too much, or spending too much energy on arguing where it's really not um, not necessary. And I mean. Um, the biggest fail you can ever have in any kind of audit situation, if you have the, the if you're not learning from one to the next and basically showing the same topics on findings from one to the next, then that's a clear indication, of evidence that your management process is not working. Yeah, 
I mean, I guess my biggest sort of uh, pitfall that I would see is um, uh, people trying to implement an ISMS without management support. Basically, you know, getting the uh, the task and someone just saying, yeah, yeah, Joe, you take care of it and call me when it's done. And that just does not work. I mean, it is a management system, meaning yeah. management needs to be involved. If you don't have that buy-in, I'd say spend your money elsewhere. Uh, an ISO certification yeah. is not going to help. And it's, I mean, something they're looking at, right? If Whether there is uh, actual management sponsorship on of that, And that might be already a finding if it's not. All right. Our next topic for today is PSD2. Now, I will say that uh, Stefan and I, obviously, we have a little bit of a prep where we, uh, you know, talk about what we're going to say and, and uh, sort of roughly the the topics we want to address. And uh, we're a bit sort of uh, on the fence if we should talk about PSD2 because, to be quite frank, um, we actually don't know that much about what's happening in PSD2. And we were sort of wondering, well... Is that because we, you know, just haven't done enough research or it just hasn't been our, our topic? Or maybe it's because there just isn't that much happening around PSD2. So it's been more than a year since uh, PSD2 um, came into effect and, you know, uh, uh, startups could essentially apply for licenses to, you know, offer cool new services and um, – Maybe also to provide a little bit of background, so PSD2 um, is the open banking regulation that mandates that every bank must open access to accounts um, on behalf of the customers um, via an API. So basically enabling things like having you know an account overview of multiple bank accounts in one application would be you know, a typical example of that, um, with, of course, some uh, requirements for the uh, um, third-party processor um, uh, around security, around risk management, around uh, structure, and of course, um, also around the authentication mechanism as to sort of what needs to be in place to make sure that the customer actually um, is permitting access to this account. Um, I mean, what, what have you been hearing? Yeah, I, I agree with you that I haven't paid so much attention anymore. And I'm not sure if it's uh, just related because nothing is happening. I'm sometimes seeing some headlines. Um, and I think there was recently just a new deadline about actually opening up these these banking APIs. Um, but otherwise, maybe it's it, it was part of this like general hype cycle on these things, uh, similar like GDPR, where there was the big hype last year and then kind of people, I mean, maybe still talking a little bit about it, but not so much anymore. But with PSD2, that's even more of a, like a payment and, and fintech nerd topic that the general population uh, probably has never heard about and don't even know uh, that it stands for Payment Service Directive. Uh, uh, so um, maybe that's the case. See, but that's the thing, right? I would have expected one of two uh, one, or more than one thing, right? So one, that there would be like a ton of new awesome apps that everyone would be using to leverage sort of this newfound ways to access uh, bank accounts. And I mean, maybe I just haven't found them, but it yeah. doesn't seem like there's, you know, a massive ecosystem around these new PSD2-enabled yeah. apps. I mean, maybe it's also a German view because in many ways the ecosystem kind of has been here already, I guess, because there have been these banking APIs for many, many years. Uh, old school was called like this HBCI interface and apps using it and services. But of course, now they are regulated and have to do something about it. But there's been also this transi transitional period. Um, so, I mean, there have been players uh, 
on that uh, also people we know in like various companies like Endigit. Yeah, big Fidget shout out to those guys. Right. Uh, now, if we yell loud enough, they might even be able to hear us because they're literally two buildings over. Yeah. Uh, really good guys. Yeah. And from what I hear, they've had a really great last year. Um, what I also hear, a lot of um, project-driven revenue. Um, so I guess it begs the question just in general in the PSC2 startups, is there a sustainable transaction-based, uh, recurring revenue-based model there? Or is it, or is this a bit of a, a peak at the moment? Um, yeah, it's also, I mean, the, the one of the latest uh, news a couple of weeks ago that I really consciously recognized was this uh, merger between Figo and Finleap. Uh, no, sorry, Finreach, sorry, the uh, Finleap company. And um, um, Figo was actually, I think, the first company to get the um, TPP certification from Bafin here in Germany. And um, that is partly because they have some smart people like Cornelia Schwertner on, on board who, who are experts in the compliance field. And then it's actually in many ways not that new what you had to do. I guess a lot of other um, companies who now had to do something were kind of overwhelmed and paying lawyers a lot of uh, money. And I don't know if that was always so useful. Yeah, we, I mean, we, uh, from working with some some of our friends in that space, uh, I mean, we heard really outrageous uh, quotes from law firms to essentially write a risk management framework, mm. um, you know, upwards of 200 grand. And, and some op-risk op and technical controls. Uh, uh, so yeah, so I mean, it's... Uh, I think uh, there were certainly some law firms that made a good deal of money mm -hmm. on this. Um, I hear that uh, Consensus uh, out of the UK uh, is doing exciting things. Um, I mean, there, mm -hmm. there's, there seems to be some, some progress. But I think my takeaway from this segment is if there's anyone out there, um, some of our friends, FinTech Systems and Digit, Consensus, if you guys want to come on and enlighten us, um, I, would, I would really yeah. enjoy that. Join us. Absolutely. Um, tell us about BSD2. And uh, I have, do have to say, I mean, one personal effect I saw because, I mean, there's been other things in that regulation is remember that especially with flight bookings or like travel bookings where you always had to pay like extra fees if you wanted to use a credit card, that was abolished also with PSD2. So I think we have all kind of noticed it. Fair enough. And the news um, look, I've got three things on my list, Stefan. Um, first and foremost, uh, another shout out to Yevgeny and the cool guys at, at Clausmatch. Um, they just opened their presence in uh, Asia. They were out in Singapore last week. Uh, some pretty cool coverage they got. And uh, yeah, really all the best. Uh, super exciting times. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, what's, what's your thought? Where would, um, uh, on sort of the Asia Pacific market, is Singapore the place to be? Uh I suspect. Yeah? Uh, I mean, we haven't done so much except hire a bunch of interns from there. Yeah? <laughs> so uh, that's uh, it's always interesting to observe what happens there. We made a bit of a decision to postpone like a very active market entry because we have so many other Well, as a part to uh, Australia, which is yeah, still Asia pack, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, it's still like hours and thousands of kilometers away. Yeah? So um, this is something we are observing. But I think this move from clause match is underlining – some uh, hypothesis we also had and is our part of our own strategy that RegTech um, is, is, do, does not really work or is not this local thing, but it's somehow global from the start. And you have um, not so much differences between different regions, but more in the use. The use cases are quite, can be quite similar across really multiple regions uh, immediately. Yeah, no, I, it, 
100% agreed. And uh, two weeks ago, we were actually at uh, the portfolio day of uh, one of our investors. And uh, I was actually on a panel where the topic was internationalization. Uh, because obviously, uh, over the last couple months, we opened our office in Melbourne, in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom, wisdom when you talk to uh, uh, to investors is, well, you know, you look for one really pointy market and then uh, locally and then you dominate that and then you move on to the next locally and then you might go to Austria from our yeah, perspective. Yeah, and then and you, you have to put like massive resources in um, parachute and 50 people or something. <laughs> I mean, like these like kind of consumer level um, um, businesses. Yeah, look, and I uh, think that's cool if you want to, you know, roll out, uh, I don't know, the new pizza delivery service or whatever on a you know on a consumer base app that makes total sense but i think that regtech is actually very different right because most of the time uh, first of all it's a saas model right so first there's you know no uh, really adaption of the product and this is also a point that i made on the panel is that as long as you have a product that doesn't have high cost of adapting to a new market, why wouldn't you at least opportunistically address a larger market? Now, uh, for us, I guess the cost or the or the, um, the the driver behind addressing a market or not is really um, A, uh, specific marketing, specific targeting, and then B, hiring people to address that market. So, I mean, obviously, you know, we'll just randomly hire people around the world. Um, but I don't think that conventional wisdom of dominating one specific market and then moving from there is the way for regtechs to go, mm. um, simply because I don't think regtech in any space is a winner-takes-all market, right? I mean, even though, um, for example, Clausmatch have a product which is really similar uh, in some ways to ours, we actually see ourselves more as collaborators um, than as competitors. And, uh, you know, now we're actually in a very pointy part of regtech, very close together compared to other players. So, um Uh, actually, I liked what uh, the guys from Blacklane said is, um, you know, don't care what people tell you about internationalization. Do what you think is best for your business. And uh, I, I absolutely buy into that. Mm. And it also helps us locally in, in um, deals because we get taken much more seriously by this kind of now saying, okay, we are a multinational corporation. Huh? Uh, so in many ways we are. Um, oh, and plus someone has to go and uh, spend some time in the cool offices. So I, I, I know that you really hated being in New York last week, Stefan. Yeah, yeah. The, the <laughs> it was, was terrible. <laughs> and I'm sure no drinks at all whatsoever. Uh, some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we got off on a little bit of a tangent there on internationalization. Um, on uh, sort of the opposite scale of internationalization, Brexit. It's still a mess. It's still crazy. Apparently now, as we're speaking, uh, the UK Parliament has taken control away from the Prime Minister and uh, uh, going down this process. I was listening to uh, another podcast this morning where they're basically in a bind because they can't do anything. Uh, there, there's no real outcome here possible anymore. Even if you put it um, to a new referendum, it wouldn't be in time uh, before the uh, EU parliamentary elections, meaning uh, – and uh, because Britain hasn't prepared for it, they couldn't participate in it. So it's kind of looking like a hard Brexit regardless of what anyone does. Yeah, I mean, to tell, to tell you the truth, I'm kind of tired of it. And I'm just saying, let's, let's just get on with it. Uh, let's just see what happens then. Because, I mean, what else can they do now with this kind of postponement? 
I agree. I mean, I, I just want to know what the situation is and then deal with it and how it affects our business yeah. and uh, f- just get on with it. But Yeah, I mean, today uh, we did get actually the first question related to something like um, data processing contracts and situation. But uh, uh, For our UK entity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, UK customer. Uh, actually, someone related to that whole thing, a government client. And um, the... Uh, I mean, the especially in that GDPR space, it will. It looks like everything will stay pretty much the same. Yeah? Uh, the, um, there will be some slight procedural differences, but the, uh, all signs pointing. In. Basically, UK will keep the, its version. EU will keep its version. Uh, both will kind of make an adequacy decision for uh, for each other, and then it's uh, like nothing changed, basically. Well, speaking of things that actually will change within the EU, um, the copyright reform. Uh, this week in uh, Brussels, the copyright reform was agreed upon. Now, um, it's uh, it's a uh, it's a bit of a mess. I w- I must say, like I fundamentally understand what they were after. Right? Um, there's a lot of content being created, and the content or the copyright holders um, should have stronger protection um, online for people hosting, processing. Um, duplicating or sharing their content. I fundamentally get that. Um, I think it's one of those um, examples where uh, the EU has taken their sort of, uh, I'm going to say hatred towards um, the big internet uh, companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook and paired that with a sort of very principled discussion that doesn't really have any reality in tech. Um, leading to this weird um, situation of essentially meaning um, companies will have to employ or use upload filters to pre-check um, for copyright infringements before hosting anything. And now this could, you know, quite frankly, also affect us. Mm. Um, we allow our users to upload with uh, uh, attachments with quite frankly, an enormous amount of encryption. So even if we wanted to, we wouldn't be able to see what's in them, let alone check for the copyright. Yeah, and it's, I mean, shifting around the the accountability a bit. I mean, some of that stuff has been um, in there for a long time. And I remember even doing some, putting some videos on YouTube even maybe 10 years ago with some songs in the background and they were like immediately within seconds they were locked because uh, they had some uh, yeah, but that's, identification in there. Yeah, but that's that's the easy bit. Yeah. Like for example, uh, what was it, two weeks ago in New Zealand we saw that even with all of the filters and all the capabilities of like these the biggest um, tech companies in the world, it still took them hours and hours and hours to stop the uh, the live feed of the uh, shooter in, in uh, New Zealand to be replicating, right? So, you know, it's not trivial to have robust watermarks. And it's, it's just an example of saying, you know, I want this principle to be law and therefore I'll get a political decision for it. But there's technical or, um, or just realities in, uh, that are just not accounted for. Mm. Yeah, what I found particularly interesting um, about this is the kind of reaction to the protests that happened, and I think it was especially strong strong in Germany, maybe not not so much in other EU countries. And the whole thing is pretty much a, a project of the um, conservative wing in the EU Parliament, and the reactions they had to that to to those protests, kind of thing. Ah, these are all like artificial bots or like oh paid, yeah, they're paid, paid for by paid Google protesters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a hysteria and like a really um, um, 
I understand that not all developments that we have with the big tech giants are like positive and there's certain things to look at, yeah? but it's getting uh, to quite irrational uh, levels um, and it's not really helping to find a uh, good solution uh, for that whole thing in the future. Yeah, but I mean the uh, – or I guess the uh, really substantial criticism of uh, tech giants is not unique to the EU. Like for example, uh, one of the front runners in the Democratic primaries uh, for the 2020 uh, election, Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, went out and said uh, on her uh, – one of the top agenda points that she's going to bring into uh, her administration is breaking up of tech giants, right, which is, uh, you know, in – Uh, by all measures, incredibly capitalist U.S., um, to have that on your agenda of one of the front runners is pretty full on. So uh, I, I'm I'm very anxious to see how politics, how society um, really find a solution for uh, the realities in data and technology, um, but on a acceptable legal basis. And uh, I'm certain we haven't uh, we haven't done the last podcast on this. Let's put it yeah, that way. And, and often there's now people talking about who don't really know much of the technical details, unfortunately. So I don't know. My, let's see what happens. I, I'm 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 getting more optimistic about the younger generation. I have to say now. <laughs> now saying this as an as an now almost old person. Yeah. Um, so uh, some of that that activism that's happening now lately. That's uh, I find that rather re refreshing. Yeah. Um, compared to maybe some um, like in the intervening years, there was a bit of an apathy about these things. I had the feeling. Go millennials. <laughs> well, now it's the Generation Z, right? Uh, what I just learned two weeks ago. So those are the, the people born after the, the change of the millennium, millennium, basically. Well, speaking of the millennials, however, I have a great surprise because I have been told – now, this is a bit awkward because I've been told there will be a jingle for our favorite segment, the top three. However, I haven't heard it yet because at the um, point of recording, it has not been uh, recorded yet. But Bailey and Allison are standing behind me and they are saying they will record one. And so by putting this on the podcast, obviously, I'm very much putting the uh, putting the pressure on. So um, after this sentence, you will hear the new jingle to intro our top three. It's the top three. And I hope that jingle was absolutely awesome. Um, our top three for this week are the top three emails that we get on a regular basis. Um, uh, now, as soon as you've sort of uh, updated your LinkedIn or whatever that you have a that you're an executive of a company or you fit a certain profile, you are targeted by. Um, more or less scams. And some of our favorite ones uh, we want to put in our top three. Now, um, for me, um, and this is a reasonably new one, just some random person trying to sell you something, went on LinkedIn, found one person you're connected with and starts the email, Hi, Carl, I saw you are connected to XYZ, full stop, and then whatever the sales pitch is. Where it's like it's sort of the the – That's not even enough effort to get me interested. But it's just sort of you get one name that you r vaguely potentially recognize and then use that as your hookup. It's really weird and it kind of annoys me. Yeah, I mean maybe it works in like 1% of the cases and that's maybe enough if they do that on a really large scale. You're number three. 
uh, I would I would say um, all these um, conferences that are happening everywhere. I mean, and this is a this is exploded in RegTech, but you see that also in all various other topics. Cybersecurity has been like that for years, and uh, it's not just emails. It's like we get calls like every day, uh, <laughs> somebody trying to sell us. Uh, this stuff and yep. um, some of these might be good, yeah, but it's so hard to determine the um, bad from the good. Yeah, that is – honestly, it's one of my biggest challenges is knowing which conference to attend, which yeah. not. There is just so much noise. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And it's, it really has some of the pushiest um, salespeople out there. <laughs> yes. My number two. Um, now, there are a couple flavors of this. I think it's it, – I don't know how many people are. I don't think it's very many. And it's, oh, congratulations. You have been awarded one of the top five whatever solutions in whatever magazine. Um, we would and blah, blah, blah. And we would like to award you this unique experience for this package. Um, uh, you get a full feature and uh, you get a, a full page of ads and you get five copies for free. And, um, and this magazine is circulated with 87,000 CIOs around the world and we are the predominant uh, uh, provider of information for CIOs, blah, blah, blah. And then they even have like a website and they actually have like these – like they do create the PDF uh, uh, or whatever and do the interview and they're, they're always horrible. And you just sort of look at these um, uh, magazines where these poor schmucks have fallen for this scam of just some random person creating a – some random PDF article on you. And uh, uh, the the fun thing for me is, though, is that when about two years ago when I started getting these, um, the cost was $6,000. And it's consistently gone down. And the last one I got was for $300. So it seems that the scam isn't working as well as it used to. Yeah, indeed. Um, You're number two. Yeah, somewhat related to that um, is uh, I guess people um, – asking uh, again salesy marketing do you want to buy like lists of contacts and data and everything oh, I mean, and this day super day, dodgy this day and age of gdpr uh, and they can't even often tell you where, where it's from and if you try it out uh, which um, uh, i'm not denying we, we we sometimes did want to see what they have is that uh, it might be like totally out of date and not like a lot of um yeah, not I wouldn't say fake, but it's often out of date and maybe scraped from like again conference web pages or something like that. Yeah. Um, look, my number one of uh, emails that I get on a almost daily basis this time is uh, Ukrainian developers. So uh, I'm sure there are tons of smart people in Ukraine that are great developers, but there seems there's always a pattern. There's some incredibly hot blonde woman. Um, who is the business development lead for some sort of uh, development company, and they all have access to 3,000 um, uh, JavaScript developers. And it's always Ukraine for some reason. Why, why is it? Yeah, I mean, there are developers in uh, many other countries. Even how, many like people, how many people live in Ukraine? It's like 20 million or I something? I don't even know. I don't, I'm not sure. But, uh, I mean, 60% of the adult population are JavaScript developers, according to my inbox. So I've... I mean, I'm sure there are smart people behind it and there are, uh, you know, great developers in Ukraine, not denying that. It just seems like there are so many. How does that even mm. work? Oh, so Bailey is just telling me 44 million. All right. So 
I guess then uh, that leaves room for about uh, roughly 30 million JavaScript developers. Yeah. And that's actually even a bit my, my number one because I just saw before we started the podcast, I saw an email come in. Uh, I think it was even one of these development companies saying, ah, yeah, our founder or CEO is on a trip and he will be in Munich. And um, can you, can we schedule a meeting? Somehow, I don't know, that's, that seems to be a pattern that they, that they always try. Yeah, like um, on the 8th of April at 1400, uh, yeah. he will be at your office. Can you confirm? It's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you don't react, they send you like three, four, five follow-ups. Uh, yeah, probably I mean, I auto scheduled. Sort of, yeah, um, I'm sure that's sort of an automated mail. Yeah. But it is pretty impressive that, I mean, I don't know, are these people really traveling? If we said yes, would there would there be a Ukrainian dude showing up? I, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, I think it's real. They probably do have a trip and it's uh, it's just part of trying to get more meetings. I mean, in some ways we're doing the same, right? So it's uh, it's not that that far away. But no, in the way enough. they're doing it, it's, it's, somehow it's, it's, it's quite annoying. And, and also very redundant. It's just all so much the same. Yeah. But fair enough. Look, I think those were our top three. Um, uh, now, I'm not quite sure. Um, what's the status? Are we going to have a jingle at the end of the top three as well? I'm looking at no. Okay, so I'm told you will not be hearing a jingle now. Um, uh, I sincerely hope you enjoyed uh, this week's, uh, the fourth episode of uh, the RegTech Report. Um, uh, once again, if you are a PSD2 expert, we really want to hear from you. I think it would make, uh, I think this uh, merits definitely a second segment uh, on PSD2. Um, check out our ISO 27001 ISMS white paper on our blog. That's blog.align.com. Um, if that's something that you're working on, uh, you know, it's really just sharing our experience. And uh, we look forward to uh, our next podcast in uh, about two weeks. Thanks for listening. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter. Follow our dedicated podcast handle at the RegTech Rep. Make sure to rate this podcast and send your thoughts and comments to the RegTech Report at align.com. Once again, that's the RegTech Report at com. You can also follow Align on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter, or catch up on our podcasts on align.com slash the RegTech Report. <laughs>